Park rangers believe the hiker may have fallen off of a trail leading to Garfield Peak. There was a set of uh, snowshoe tracks that went out towards the edge of the caldera and uh, didn't come back. Here's what we know. The hiker rented snowshoes from the Rim Village gift shop on April 28th. Two days later, a missing person report was filed. And so we started a search. The hiker's vehicle was still in the parking lot, and one of his personal items was found on the Garfield Peak Trail where the snowshoe tracks ended. Park staff will only say that the hiker was a man from outside Oregon. The family has asked that we um, not release any personal information at this time. It's believed that the hiker walked out onto a snow cornice or snow overhang, which then collapsed. It is unlikely that they could have survived the fall. That fall would have been about 1,100 feet. Rangers say the incident underscores the need to keep back from the caldera. And just for your safety and your family's safety, please keep away from the edge. For now, the location of the missing hiker remains a mystery. At Crater Lake National Park, this is Lyle Ahrens, NBC2 News. Welcome back to Season 2 of Death Mysteries. I'm your host, Kingman Bond Graham, and I'm really, really uh, blessed to be doing another season of this show. And I'd like my episodes to be a little bit longer than they have been, but I need a co-host, I think, to do that with. It's only me speaking into a microphone in my basement. I do all the editing, I do all the recording, I do all the research, and... uh, If I had somebody to share this with, I think we could make a little bit longer, maybe even a little bit better episode. So if you're listening and you're interested in co-hosting this show with me, at least maybe for one episode, try it out, and you've always wanted to podcast, who knows, uh, you can email me at deathmysteriespodcast at gmail.com. You could possibly message me on Facebook, and I fucking hate Facebook. I don't do it that much anymore. I pretty much only go on there to ID mushrooms and uh, see uh, what some of my relatives are doing out of state. That's pretty much it. Uh, You could also scribble a really creepy note and leave it on my front door. Um, Preferably scribble it in blood or something. Make it really cryptic. You could uh, make an anonymous phone call to me and say, I want to host this podcast. and. Maybe you have my phone number, maybe you don't. You could, uh, well, you could just uh, reach out to me on, uh, well, through the comment section on iTunes or whatever. You could reach out to me on YouTube. Anyway, the point is, you could get in touch with me. I'm looking for a co-host. I'd really like to share this with somebody else. That'd be cool. So if you're into the creepy, paranormal, unsolved, you know, deaths, uh, missing people, just basically everything creepy, and you want to do something cool in the podcast world, contact me. Anyway, that's enough of a little promotion there. We're going to get back to our episode on Crater Lake. 
And when we were last uh, recording, which was a couple weeks ago, we left off talking about a Hellcat fighter plane, which went missing in 1945. And it was piloted by a Frank Lupo, and he was just 22 years old at the time he went missing with his plane. Seven planes entered the fog, only six came out. And they were flying at low elevation, but we're not going to tell you what happened to Frank Lupo yet. Uh, you got to hang in there and maybe listen to the whole episode. If that's the only reason you tuned in was to find out what happened to the F-18, or yeah, I don't know if I think it was an F-18. Whatever happened to the Hellcat, then, you know, you could Google it or bang it or whatever. I suggest you just keep listening, though. So in 1947, on the 4th of July, a man named Ralph Cornelius, which that's kind of a cool fashion name, was visiting the lake with his wife, and it was the 4th of July, so there wasn't very much snow. He looked at his wife. He didn't say a word. He handed her his wallet for some reason, and then he plummeted down a snowshoot on purpose all the way down to the lake. And he broke his legs and was severely injured, and he did this on purpose. And his wife was screaming, and some other visitors were there, and maybe they were trying to go help him. Well, he was actually uh, so determined to kill himself with his broken legs, he dragged himself to the lake shore and then forced his head under water and drowned himself. So if you could imagine this, you know, you've got two broken legs, you uh, haven't said a word about why or what's happening or why you're doing this, you just do it, and then you're like, ah, I didn't die from the fall. I think I'm going to crawl over to the lake shore and drown myself. Weird, weird shit, man. Next is perhaps one of the most famous cases from Crater Lake that got a lot of media attention back in uh, 1952. So it's late July 1952. Uh, Albert Marston Jones of Concord, California, and... Charles Patrick Culhane of Detroit, Michigan, were actually going up to uh, Jones's summer cabin, and their wives were going to go to the cabin with them, but they were taking separate cars, the wives in one car, them in another car. And these two gentlemen were actually highly placed executives in the United Motors Corporation, which was a division of General Motors. They didn't make their own cars. They actually made AC Delco spark plugs. You've probably heard of them. They made a lot of other parts that went into General Motors cars. So they were sort of a, a parts manufacturer that made a lot of the stuff that goes into the cars. Um, I think I already said that, but you get the point. Um, so they were executives in a pretty powerful company. And they were driving a green 1951 Pontiac, which... Man, that sounds cool to me. I uh, A lot of you guys don't know this, but my first car was a Pontiac. It was a Pontiac T-1000. Sounds cool. Kind of sounds like a Terminator, right? No, well, Pontiac T-1000 was basically a Chevette clone. And uh, yeah, I drove a Chevette clone in high school. Um, I bought it with my own money. Hey, um, my parents didn't buy me that car. I bought it with my own money. I had a job. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, it was awesome. Right. Uh, I, I, I like sold newspaper subscriptions and whatnot. Um, I didn't have a lot of money, so you can imagine the car was not in great shape. Uh, anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. I would love to have a new Pontiac 
not a new Pontiac, an old classic Pontiac that is new to me. That would be really cool. A 1951 would be even cooler, right? So uh, Jones and Culhane uh, decided to drive through the Crater Lake National Park, um, and their wives were going to meet them at Culhane's. Uh, uh, what am I saying? At Jones's uh, summer cabin, which is on Union Creek. And I know Union Creek really well. That area is very, very good for mushroom hunting. That area is very good for hiking. There's waterfalls. There's all kinds of cool stuff. And yes, there are a bunch of cabins up there, and there's private property. It's outside of the Crater Lake National Park, but not too far. It's uh, maybe a half-hour drive outside of Crater Lake, uh, and probably only 10, 15 minutes outside of the park boundary. Um, so they, they were going to go up there, hang out, probably do some fishing. Uh, it's late July. It's beautiful up there. It's warm. Uh, their wives were traveling in a separate car, so they actually uh, were driving along uh, for for some unknown reason. Um, the, the details of this case are actually pretty sketchy. So they are driving separately than their wives. Uh, their wives are behind them. I don't know how far behind them, but uh, so they're two wives. I don't know their names. It doesn't say anything about their names in the articles I've read. Uh, they're driving along, and they see this green 1951 Pontiac pulled over on an overlook near Annie Springs. And both the doors are wide open. So the wives say, hey, that's our husband's car. They stop. They get out. They investigate. And neither of these two men are anywhere to be found. And so the wives kind of get nervous. They're like, why is the car here? Why are the doors open? And where are our husbands? And after some yelling and screaming and looking, they uh, go over to the ranger station and they report their husband's missing. So they go to the ranger station, they come back, the rangers start looking for the husbands, and as they're going through the woods, about a quarter mile off the road, they find the bodies of these two men. And they are in a stand of ponderosa pine trees. Their hands are bound together, you know, tied up. And their shoes are gone. And the most important detail is they're dead. They've both been shot in the head. They had also been gagged, but their socks were clean. And so basically investigators say, okay, they had their shoes on when they walked this quarter mile through the woods. Somebody bound their hands and, you know, gagged them, but didn't bother tying up their feet. But they took their shoes and then shot them both in the head, execution style, at point-blank range. So Mr. Jones's shoes were actually found pretty close by. It took some looking, but they were uh, out in the woods there, kind of, uh, I think, maybe 50 or 100 feet away from the bodies. But Colhane's shoes were never found. Now, the rangers had actually, the, the rangers who responded... And I think there was actually a few other locals in the area assisting with the search. They had never dealt with a murder scene before, so the the entire scene was trampled and was compromised, and the evidence was very, very hard to use in an investigation. So the FBI was actually called in. Remember I said these were two high-powered executives? Well, when you're, uh, you know, a rich, important person... There's more resources available to investigate your death. And remember my episode, Limited Resources? Well, if you're poor or, you know, in today's age, um, 
unless you're a kid or a really good looking blonde chick, uh, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of resources poured into your missing person or a murder case. And are there more murders and more missing people today than there were in 1952? Well, because our population is bigger, yes, there are, but there was still a lot of really bad shit going on back in 1952, uh, hence our murder of these two men. Uh, so the FBI comes in, they actually, uh, well, so they didn't have surveillance cameras back in 1952, but the rangers were diligent about recording the license plates of every single car that entered the park and they had taken them all down, and the FBI said, hey, this is a good starting point. Maybe our murder suspect or suspects drove into the park, and we have their license plate. Because uh, you couldn't, today you can't get into the park either without going through a, uh, uh, there's a guard station, you know, much like every national park. Um, some are harder to get into than others. There's a guard station with a ranger there, and you can't get into the park, at least with a vehicle, without, you know, paying a fee and entering your license plate and getting a little sticker or a little uh, receipt thing to put in your windshield. Um, so my point is they took a record of everybody who entered the park. The FBI actually spent years running down every license plate. They even traveled to Europe to interview some people who had been in the park. Um, they developed a few suspects, uh, some people they thought possibly could be people, persons of interest, people of interest, uh, in the murder case, but there was never an arrest made, and whoever killed these two executives, um, Mr. Jones and Mr. Calhane, they got away with it, man. They got away with it. Now, what could the motive be? Could this actually be personal? Could somebody have known they were going to be there? Um, were these men involved with something different than anybody else knew about? Remember, they were traveling separate from their wives. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Were they just in the wrong place at the wrong time? What's up with Calhane's shoes never being found? Hmm, these are all really interesting things to ponder. Did the killer actually walk out of the woods with Calhane's shoes on their feet? Was robbery the motive? Um, did they see something that they weren't supposed to see? Who knows? Um... Uh, in fact, it's a death mystery, and this one will probably go unsolved to this time. You know, it's been pretty much 70 years, and uh, no suspects. In 1953, we have a man dying taking a selfie. You heard that right. In 1953, a man named Edward Ed, Edmund, Edmund's a cool name, Edmund Clark, and he's from Cave Junction. Uh, and if you've ever been to Cave Junction, you know there's not a whole lot there. The Oregon Caves are there. Maybe we'll do an episode on the Oregon Caves. Hmm, I don't know. Uh, so anyway, this guy, Edmund, is up on the Castle Creek Canyon area uh, near some really cool rocks, and he's trying to take a photograph of himself, a selfie. Um, you know, probably had a big camera and a tripod and a timer and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and he falls to his death.
1954, uh, I think it was around, yeah, around June of 1954, a 16-year-old girl falls to her death uh, on the rim near Senate Overlook. Gosh, another person falls near Senate Overlook. Um, Wow. In 1956, a photographer falls to his death while attempting to take photographs of the Phantom Ship. And there's an area we call Sun Notch, and it's where, uh, I think it's on the solstice, um, the sun actually goes through this cool notch. So he's up there at the notch. He's going to take a photograph of uh, the Phantom Ship, which is the really cool name for the smaller island near Wizard Island. Remember, there's two islands in the, the lake, Wizard Island and Phantom Ship Island. So he's there. He is uh, trying to take a photograph. He slips, he falls, and he dies. The end. The next case I have is actually a fascinating one, but it doesn't actually occur at Crater Lake. Larry Ralph Payton was the son of... uh, Ralph and Catherine Payton, and they own the lodge, the Rim Lodge up at Crater Lake. And Larry's girlfriend, uh, Beverly Jean Allen, had come to the Crater Lake Lodge for Thanksgiving dinner. Remember I said it was November 27th. And after the dinner, they uh, set off on a drive, and I guess um, Larry was going to drive his girlfriend home. She lived in Washington State. They were both 19 years old. And on their way back to Washington State, uh, for some reason, probably to get gas or eat dinner or something, it's a long drive, um, they stopped in Portland. And we don't know exactly why they were at the location where, uh, I'll just say it, Larry, uh, Larry's body was found. Um, there's a, a park called Forest Park in Portland, and some passerbys found Larry's body in the car. He'd been stabbed 23 times, but uh, Beverly Ann was nowhere to be found. And I, I guess Beverly Ann had been an employee at Crater Lake uh, that summer, and that's where they met. Uh, young love, 19 years old. So anyway, uh, she is nowhere to be found. Larry has been stabbed to death, and uh, they don't have any good suspects. And they don't know where Beverly Ann is. Uh, It would actually be two years before her body is discovered, uh, decomposed west of Portland in some bushes. No suspects were ever identified in this case, and it remains open to this day. The police did have a few uh, people that they looked into, but they could never make it stick. And so this is yet another unsolved murder. And it'll probably go unsolved too, being the length of time has been so many decades. In 1961, there is a fatal car accident at one of the entrances to Crater Lake. And then in 1962, a 36-year-old man is found mysteriously dead at Mazama Campground. The death is ruled a heart attack. So that's sort of odd being that he's 36. In August of 1963, we have another fatal car accident where a trailer uh, being towed by a car 
uh, basically fishtails the uh, family vehicle and rolls over both the trailer and the vehicle, and a woman is killed, and the young children are injured, have to go to the hospital, but they ultimately survive. The husband had no injuries. Then on August 7th of uh, 1963, we have another man, uh, I don't have the age on him, who dies of a mysterious heart attack, mysterious, uh, at the Mazama campground. A lot of heart attacks at Mazama campground. And our final death for 1963 was a construction worker who was building roads at Crater Lake. I believe it was on the incline coming up from the bend side. And a dump truck basically rolled over him and killed him really close to the lake. So we're going to skip to 1968. You heard that right. There was no deaths in the park for an entire five years. That's got to be some kind of record for Crater Lake. On August 30th of 1968, a man who was camping at the park named George Muir went out to gather firewood, and he never came back. Sometime later, another family was out gathering firewood near the pole bridge, and they found George Muir's body, and he had been beaten and stabbed and stuffed into a sleeping bag. And it's kind of important to note, George Muir had just left the army a few months before this happened, and he had set off across the country. He was looking for work. You know, it's 1968. I assume he was in Vietnam, so he survived Vietnam, but ultimately was killed by some scumbag while camping at Crater Lake. And this is another one that remains unsolved. And an autopsy showed that George Muir's last meal was actually Chinese food, so that might be a clue to the puzzle. The FBI actually got involved. And they did a lot of investigating. I think the Chinese, Chinese meal is, uh, is pretty unique. You know, we had Chinese restaurants around here. But if you're camping, what are the odds that you're going to eat Chinese food? Pretty slim. Another clue to what it may have happened to George Muir, his car was stolen. And it actually wound up all the way in Fresno, California, about three weeks later. George Muir's camera and his camping equipment also showed up in a couple of pawn shops, one of them in Fresno and I think another one in Sacramento. And the FBI was never able to determine who stole the car, who pawned the uh, uh, George Muir's stolen goods. Um, Yeah, this is another unsolved one. And are we going to get justice for George Muir? Probably not. You know, it's been, uh, well, it's been a long time, you know. 60 years or so, well, 52 years, pardon me. Ah, it's a shame, you know. Survive Vietnam, come back here, and you're, you're killed by, like I said, some scumbag. And it just, that, that one makes me mad. In 1969, we have another fatal car accident where a pickup truck rolls over near Annie Spring, actually the same overlook where our executives were killed, and the driver's killed and the passenger has to survive for a couple of days trapped inside the pickup truck. Then we have a 14-year-old girl named Tina Bassett, and she was from Grants Pass, and she fell to her death while walking near the Cleetwood Lake Trail. 
And Tina Bassett is notable because she was actually the daughter of uh, one of our state senators, Roger Bassett. And it's unknown if there was any legislation or any more action taken because he was kind of a a big deal here in Oregon. But uh, yeah, a lot of people slip and fall and die around Crater Lake a lot. So we've made it all the way to 1970, and there's a lot more to go here. But in 1970, we actually get to find out what happened to Frank Lupo and that Hellcat fighter. So a few years before this, the Navy had identified the crash site of the Hellcat, and there had been a trail cut out to the place where the airplane was. And one of the rangers at the park, a man named David Painbreaker, set out on a day hike to go look at the remains of the Hellcat fighter plane. And keep in mind, this plane had been there since 1945, so it's 25 years later, and Frank Lupo's remains had never been found. Ranger David Painbreaker actually gets lost while looking for the plane, and he is exhausted, and it is, and you know, it's August 17th, so it's real hot, and he probably needs water, and he sits down next to a log to rest and maybe collect his thoughts and figure out how he's going to get out of the woods. And as the story goes, he is sitting there, and he looks over, and he sees a skull right there next to the log, and he picks it up, and he carries it back. He makes his way back to the ranger station, and he reports to the head ranger uh, what he's found, and the head ranger says, hmm, I think this might be the skull of Frank Lupo, and the Navy sends out a criminal investigation team, and they actually ID the skull as Frank Lupo from dental dental records, and, well, case closed, right? Well, the skull was the only part of his remains ever found, and it was found, I think, about a mile, a mile and a half from the crash scene. So does that mean that he either bailed out and fell there, or did animals drag his skull and other remains a mile and a half from the crash plane? Or did he survive for some time, maybe with broken bones, and make his way, trying to make his way out, basically, uh, you know, to save himself, and then perished in the woods? We will never know. On March 28th of 1971, a man named Nick Carlino, who was from Grants Pass, rents a couple of snowshoes from the Rim Village and sets out to sightsee in the snow. And he's with his dog, a German Shepherd. Uh, Sometime later, his German Shepherd returned to the gym village without Nick. So a search party set out, and they went looking for Nick. They actually couldn't find him. And so they spent actually a couple of days seeing if they could find him. Maybe he was lost. And it wasn't until April 7th, uh, about, you know, a week later, that his body was found in about five feet of water encased in ice. So he had basically fallen down the cliff in an avalanche, this is what they suppose, and he had frozen and was in a block of ice underneath a bunch of water. Uh, So R.I.P. Nick, and uh, that sucks. (music) 
On February 28th of 1975, a blue Cessna Model 182 leaves the Klamath Falls Airport with a teacher and two flight students aboard, and it is lost. It loses communication. It uh, It's not seen again on, well, I don't think they had radar, but basically loses radar communication, and the, both the students and the uh, teacher never return to the Klamath Falls Airport. They're thinking that it crashed somewhere around the Crater Lake National Park. And we'll probably come back to this one in a little bit. The next case I have for you is actually one of the more reported cases from Crater Lake National Park. A 19-year-old man named Charles Chuck McCuller left his home in Virginia, and his plan was to photograph national parks. He had a bunch of new photography equipment with him, and we know he made it to a bunch of his destinations, and uh, he was in Eugene, we know, on January 8th of 1975, and he was uh, visiting some friends there, and he had plans to go into Crater Lake National Park. And I'm going to bring this up right now. Charles was hitchhiking. You got that right. He was hitchhiking. And I don't think hitchhiking is what it used to be. Um, But, well, I know it's not what it used to be. People used to do it a lot. And yeah, we hear about this in a lot of true crime podcasts. If you're hitchhiking, you're making yourself into a target. Some psycho weirdo rapist is going to pick you up and do what they want with you because you're basically their prisoner in their vehicle. Well, Charles told his friends, hey, I'll be back in two days. You know, that was his plan. Hitchhike to Crater Lake from Eugene and then hitchhike back and be back in two days. That's a pretty tall order, in my opinion, because Eugene is a good uh, probably three-hour drive. Um, I'm not going to Google how much of a distance it is, but, yeah, it's actually probably three-and-a-half, four-hour drive, you know, so that'd be a lot of hitchhiking to do in two days. Oh, but he did tell his friends, hey, I'm going to be gone for two days, but if I'm not back by February 1st, that's, you know, three weeks later, uh, call my parents and call the authorities because I will be back no matter what, even if my plans go awry by February 1st. So we do have some sightings of Chuck McCuller in late January, actually, near the Diamond Lake area. And we know that he was given a ride by some loggers in a logging truck sometime around January 30th. So come February, uh, Charles Chuck is reported missing. His dad flies out from Virginia and a massive ground search is launched. And despite the efforts of the state police, the Rangers, uh, maybe even the Boy Scouts, National Guard, uh, volunteers, you know, a lot of resources were pulled in to try to find Charles McCuller. Well, he didn't turn up, at least not until 1976. On October 14th of 1976, two rangers named Larry Smith and Marion Jack discover a ripped and torn backpack inside the park. And its contents were scarce, but there was a Volkswagen key inside. And coincidentally, Charles McCuller had owned a Volkswagen bus back in Virginia. So a copy of the key was made, a Xerox. And you guys remember Xerox machines? Uh, so awesome, uh, was made and was actually mailed back because <laughs> they didn't have fax machines or cell phones or any of that kind of stuff. They mailed it back to Virginia, and it was compared to the other key 
that was left in Virginia by uh, McCullough's father, and it was a match. So the Rangers called in reinforcements, and they set out on horseback to do a grid search of the area where the backpack was found. And at 1.30 p.m., a radio call came into the Rangers that one of their search party had located a set of human remains. So here's where it gets even more mysterious. Charles's remains were found four miles from the trailhead in a drainage area scattered about. And this was four miles down a trail. At the time he went missing, there would have been about 10 feet of snow. The area where his remains were found was called the Bybee Creek area. And basically, there aren't any snowmobile trails up there. This would have been almost inaccessible, probably inaccessible, unless you had a snowmobile, helicopter, that kind of thing when he went missing. And why would you go four miles up a trail in the snow? I mean, people do crazy stuff. Uh, But yeah, 10 feet of snow, it's pretty mysterious. What makes things even more mysterious is that his camera equipment was never found. So if he did set out to go and you know take pictures, maybe he got too cold. Maybe he put his camera equipment down in the snow. Um, who knows? But it remains one of those really weird cases. There are some theories that he was actually kidnapped and murdered and dumped out at the Bybee Creek area, uh, possibly by somebody on a, on a snowmobile. Um, who knows? So there's one more really weird thing about Charles McCullough's disappearance that I'm going to mention. It's the condition of his remains. So they found the top of his skull, basically his skull cap, and they found his jeans. And inside his jeans were his leg bones. And his leg bones were inside of his socks, but his shirt and his shoes and the rest of him was completely missing. So no arms, no legs, no torso. Uh, Could this have been caused by wild animals scavenging him? Sure. But where's his camera equipment? Where's his shirt? Where's his jacket? Where's his boots? All that stuff probably would show up. And they looked. uh, They looked hard. The FBI came in and searched the area pretty good. So maybe that stuff's still out there. Maybe I'll hike out to Bybee Creek and see if I can find some really old clothes and really old boots and a really old camera sometime. Maybe make a video of it for my Death Mysteries YouTube video channel. Who knows? On September 11th of 1976, a young man named Brian Thomas, he was 26 years old, who happened to be a Vietnam veteran, arrived at Crater Lake National Park with his wife, seeking some relaxation, and it's said that he was uh, suffering from PTSD. The night that Brian Thomas got to Crater Lake was actually September 10th, and he had spent the entire night in the lobby of the Rim Hotel, wrapped in a sheet and shaking and visibly upset and unconsolable. At 8 a.m., Brian Thomas abruptly gets up and throws his sheet down, and then he starts running. He screams out that he's going to kill himself. So park staff and rangers and the boat crew actually give chase along with his wife. Keep in mind this is happening at the Rim Hotel, which is where a lot of people fall to their death on accident, and it's really high up. I mean, the cliffs around Rim Hotel are, well, you know, thousand-foot drops. 
So Brian Thomas uh, runs full speed without stopping at all and leaps a thousand feet off this cliff to his death. On the 4th of July of 1977, a 14-year-old boy named Stephen Hummerville who is from Wilmington, Delaware, attempts to climb down to the lake behind the lodge, the same place where our Vietnam veteran leapt to his death just a few short months beforehand, and he falls to his death. His 15-year-old brother is rescued but injured. Gosh, that's another 4th of July death. That's a pretty common day. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll avoid Crater Lake on the 4th of July. August 24th of 1978, a massive ground search is organized for that missing Cessna 182 I mentioned earlier that had disappeared out of the Klamath Falls airport with a teacher and two flight students aboard. And they cover 50 square miles using the National Guard and all local and state resources. This was a massive search, and they cannot locate the plane. So there was a search early on in 1975, and then again, three years later, a massive search is launched uh, to try to find this plane. No results. So next we have actually a really kind of a weird story. On September 8th of 1978, a man named Gary Roden, who was from Eminiclaw, Washington, uh, comes up to the rangers at the ranger station and asks if he can leave his backpack there while he explores the area around the Rim Village. By nightfall, Gary Roden had not returned to claim his pack, so the rangers left a note on the door with the phone number to their residence saying, Hey, if you get back here and it's dark and you want your pack, we'll come and get it for you and you know make sure that you've got your stuff. Uh, three days later, the ranger named Hank... Gosh, I'm going to butcher his last name. No, I'm not. Hank Tansky is actually out on Wizard Island. He actually finds a postcard on Wizard Island from Gary Roden, and it reads, I am on the island, and I am never leaving. That's pretty weird. In the next day or so, a few people are said to have reported that they see somebody walking around the island and hiding. And a couple of days after that, the boat crew is out on the island and they find Rodin inside of the boathouse on Wizard Island. And he had been there the whole time and he says to the boat crew, uh, I had swum out to the island, I had planned to kill myself by swallowing a bunch of drugs, but instead of killing myself, I hung out on the island, I got really high on cocaine and quaaludes and other stuff, and kind of partied it up, and uh, now I don't want to kill myself anymore. There's also a plot twist to this. It turns out that uh, Gary Roden was actually an escaped mental patient from the Salem Mental Hospital, 
So I don't know how this mental patient, you know, escaped and then got him got his hands on a bunch of cocaine and other pills and then made his way to Crater Lake and then partied it up on Wizard Island. But that's a pretty cool story. You know, it doesn't end badly. He ends up being returned to the mental hospital, but um, you know, at least he's not dead. Um, so yeah, a fun one for you. May 27th of 1979, we have a motorcycle accident at the West Park entrance that kills rider Jerry Savitas and uh, injures, almost well, critically injures, Sandra Colts. Uh, God, I'm butchering these names. Uh, so that was the only incident in 1979 that I could find. I have nothing reported for 1980, but in 1981, another one of my favorite incidents occurs in the park. It's even better than the mental patient who went to Wizard Island to do a bunch of cocaine. On April 2nd, 1981, a man named Monty Hawk, and that's a really cool name, who happened to be from South Dakota, is found dead inside of his car at the Ponderosa picnic area. And he'd committed suicide by means of carbon monoxide. He had attached a hose to his tailpipe and run it into the pass, uh, passenger compartment of his vehicle. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is this one of Kingman's most favorite incidents at the park? Well, Monty Hawk had actually left a suicide note uh, inside his vehicle, and it stated that, remember, this is 1981. And there was a controversy going on where the Supreme Court was going to allow prayer in public schools. And Monty took objection to this. He said, I quote, since the public schools are interested in allowing prayers, it is time to throw in the towel. I am filled with much despair for this perverse society in which we're forced to eke out a living. When one of the fundamental tenets of our Constitution is separation of church and state, and it is so blatantly challenged, I can only hang my head and cry. There's a thin line between genius and insanity. I believe I've walked both sides of that line at times. That's a pretty weird note. So he was angry about the possibility of prayer in schools. He was a, you know... A fundamental constitutionalist as he would as he saw himself i guess god i butchered that sentence please forgive me but wait there's more monty hawk had brought along a large quantity of porno and sadomasochistic magazines and he had actually set them on fire next to his vehicle so monty hawk leaves a suicide note decrying that prayer may be allowed in schools because he doesn't want God around. And he also thinks that sadomasochistic and porno mags are ruining our society. So he sets those on fire when he's killing himself. And I forgot to mention this. His suicide note was actually addressed to his mother. And he said, Mom, do not blame yourself for what I have done. Pretty freaking weird. I will say, though, uh, Monty Hawk killing himself, at least he didn't go and kill anybody else or, you know, school shooting or God knows what. Um, and there really wasn't very much uh, school shootings going on back then. So 
Uh, yeah, at least he only killed himself and left a crazy note and burned a bunch of porno mags. R.I.P. Monty Hawk. On the 5th of July, not the 4th of July, 1982, that plane that disappeared, the Cessna, is actually found by a hiker near the Huckleberry Campground, and all three of the missing people, the, uh, the flight instructor and his two students, all three of them are strapped into their seats, their skeletal remains are sitting there in this plane wreckage. So, mystery solved. And it gets even better. We're still in 1982, but there's another weird, weird incident that occurs in 1982. A man named Andres Marzajukis, who happened to be a German national, drives a 1982 Volvo through the south entrance at a very high rate of speed, basically blowing through the barricade. One of the rangers, a woman named Alice Seibacher, gets in her uh, parked Jeep and gives chase to this Volvo. As Ranger Cybacker is nearing the, is basically catching up with this Volvo, it suddenly veers off the road, travels about 500 feet into an embankment, and then explodes. And I mean explodes. And we'll get to that in just a second. Ranger Cybacker instantly calls this in to the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, and they respond with the bomb squad. And you're thinking, bomb squad for a car accident? That's weird. Well, remember how I said it exploded? I mean, it exploded. So after about four hours, the bomb squad had actually cleared the wreckage, and Andres's, uh hand was blown off, and his head was blown off by a hand grenade. Well, that's weird. What's a German doing with hand grenades driving a Volvo in 1982 near Crater Lake? Well, they also found a rifle, a pistol, and couple of sets of California plates that had been stolen, a bunch of false identification uh, that had his likeness on it. So did we have a spy in our midst? Remember, it's 1982. The Iron Curtain is up. So what's a German doing driving around, basically a German spy? Hmm, this is really weird. Things keep getting weirder at Crater Lake. After some investigation, it was determined that the Volvo was actually stolen out of San Diego, and Andres had rented it and never returned it. Uh, And it also turns out that Andres uh, was a wanted man. He had spent time in federal prison for drug smuggling. So is he a spy? Is he a drug smuggler? Why the hell did he barrel into Crater Lake National Park with a hand grenade? What were his plans? Well... We'll probably never know. It's going to remain a very weird death mystery. And as a side note, uh, Ranger Seibacher, following this incident, says, that was too weird. I am going to go back to being a violin maker. And to this day, she is a master violin maker. April 17th, 1984, you heard that right, nothing happened in 1983 that we know of. 
1984, another plane crashes, and the pilot, Joseph Kimmy, and his wife, Heather Kimmy, are both killed. And let's see, they were both 26 and 22 years old. Um, so they actually were out flying. There was some fog, some drizzle, and somehow they crashed into about 140 inches of snow, uh, basically on the northern boundary of the park, and they were instantly killed. Okay, we're going to skip a few more years. In 1988, a hiker who was traveling along the Pacific Crest Trail discovers the body of a man named Douglas Cracker about a half mile north of Highway 62. And I actually know exactly where this is. I know where the Pacific Crest Trail is, um, just north of 62 at this intersection. Um, So Cracker had been shot in the head and dumped in the woods. So the rangers, along with the Oregon State Police and the Jackson County Sheriff's Office, Klamath County Sheriff's Office, and there's a lot of law enforcement involved with this, decide to uh, go all out in an investigation into Mr. Cracker's murder. And they discover that he had left his home on August 22nd with plans to travel to Crater Lake. He had stayed at a hotel or motel in Klamath Falls on October 7th and October 8th. On October 9th, uh, it's said that hotel managers actually drove him, and so I'm not sure if he had a car if he was hitchhiking, but he asked hotel managers for a lift, and they took him out to Fish Lake. I love Fish Lake. It's a really cool area, uh, lots of good mushrooms there, and probably lots of fish in the lake. So I'm going to gamble to say that Mr. Cracker did not have a car. His plan was actually to hike the Pacific Crest Trail, and that's why he had asked for a ride. Uh, the Pacific Crest Trail goes actually right by Fish Lake, and this is outside the boundary of Crater Lake, but it's still in the Crater Lake area. And he had actually told the managers of the motel where he was staying to hold on to some of his stuff and that he would be back after hiking the trail for a few days. And when he didn't return by October 19th, the hotel management had actually reported him missing to the local police. During their investigation, some other hikers remember running into uh, Mr. Cracker. I love saying that. They remember running into Mr. Cracker on the trail on October 20th. So at this point, they're thinking it's a murder. But after doing even more investigation, they found his wallet, which had actually been separated from the rest of his remains because... His body had been scavenged by black bears, so it had been kind of torn apart, and they could tell that he had been shot in the head, but they didn't know he'd committed suicide. And they actually found a note in his wallet stating that he was committing suicide, and they found a weapon nearby. But again, the bears did not make this investigation easy, but ultimately it's not too much of a death mystery because a note was found, and they were able to piece this all together. On July 27th of 1990, a 33-year-old woman named Della Marie Zelinsky is visiting the park with her three children, and she's up on the precipice at Discovery Point, and she trips and falls 700 feet to her death.
And next we have another mysterious disappearance. It was October of 1991 when a man named Glenn Allen Mackey had come to Crater Lake National Park from Brea, California. He was 33 years old. And he parked his car in the Rim Village parking lot. And he set off for a little bit of a day hike. Uh, apparently his car went unnoticed for a couple of days and then the rangers uh when the snow started to fall pretty good most people had left the park they saw his car there they went over they noticed that it had been there for some days and they actually gained entry to the vehicle they found uh mr mackey's mr mackey remember south park they found mr mackey's uh basically his driver's license keys passport um toiletries some camping supplies all that kind of stuff a little bit of food um and it was obviously he was planning to come back there was no suicide note or anything like that well mr Mackey has never been found and so it's uh 30 years later his body was never found it's somewhere around the rim village um did he fall did he take a trail somewhere else it's a massive area uh, so his remains are out there somewhere maybe i'll go look for him on september 17th of 1992 a woman named kirsten haldauka who was visiting from gelsenkirchen gelsenkirchen germany uh falls to her death with uh a basically in full view of her uh, friends that she was traveling with, all German nationals, and she falls uh, approximately 700 feet in the same area where a bunch of other people have fallen, uh, right near the Rim Village. So this is a dangerous area. That's our only death for 1992. And our only death for 1993. But then, in 1995, you guessed it, something else happened. August 22nd of 1995, a 73-year-old woman from Medford by the name of Dorothy Gifford falls to her death from the Senate Overlook. Gosh, I, I don't think I'm ever going to get close to the Senate Overlook ever again. Then, on September 24th, just a little over a month later, an Aeropostel AS-350 helicopter leaves Seattle, Washington, and it's on its way to Las Vegas. And it actually crashes just near Wizard Island and sinks to the bottom of the lake. So that's about 1,500 feet of water. Apparently, there was a lot of people visiting the lake at that time, and hundreds of people viewed this helicopter descending into the caldera, basically sightseeing. I'm not really sure why they were doing it, probably to get a really cool look at the lake. So all these people are standing there at the Rim Village and down on Wizard Island and elsewhere, and they're watching this helicopter go down towards the lake, and it crashes and sinks to the bottom. And if they weren't sightseeing, it's actually speculated that the conditions were so perfect that the operator of the helicopter, a man named uh, George Causey, uh, became disoriented by the reflection of the lake and was actually flying towards the lake when he thought he was flying away from the lake. I guess there's some kind of phenomenon where pilots can become confused 
especially over bodies of water and can actually fly towards the water as opposed to away from it because of the way light is refracted. And the only thing recovered from this crash was a couple of pieces of seat cushion and part of a rotor. So this helicopter remains at the bottom of the lake, probably with the uh, pilot and his passenger. And his passenger, this is kind of tragic, um, his passenger was named Ed, Tul- Ed O. Tulenes. Tulen- I'm butchering it. Ed O. Tuliners. And it was actually his 45th birthday, and that's why he was going to Las Vegas to partay on his 45th birthday. Um, so he died. Um, and their bodies are probably still at the bottom of the lake. Not probably, almost certainly at the bottom of the lake, probably water mummies. And they're probably strapped in their seats in that helicopter forever on a sightseeing trip. So in 1996, on September 11th, a young woman named Kristen Gelling, who is only 20 years old, takes a job at the Crater Lake Rim Village uh, Guest Service Center, and she is uh, out for a little walk in the afternoon, and she falls to her death just behind the Lodge Hotel. And then in 1997, a, uh, a woman from Milwaukee, Oregon, who would have known there's a Milwaukee, Oregon, in fact, Oregon's actually uh, pretty well known for having a Salem, and well, we have a Medford, that's near where I live, and there's a lot of uh, names of towns borrowed from back east or from elsewhere. Um, I could go through the list, but eh, it's not that interesting. So um, basically, a woman from Milwaukee, Oregon, is killed right at the park entrance when she crashes her snowmobile um, into the guard shack on January 18th. Uh, so that's it for 97 and 96. In 1998, a box of blasting caps is found just a few feet off the trail at Fleetwood Cove, and it speculated that it had been there for 40 or 50 years just sitting there. And the bomb squad is once again called into Crater Lake to remove these blasting caps that everybody had been walking by for 40 or 50 years. And uh, they were literally stashed behind a tree. So uh, disaster averted, right? Uh, In 2005, we actually have a pair of incidents that occur at the Mazama campground uh, in less, well, in six weeks apart. I was going to say less than a month. Six weeks apart from each other. On August 2nd of 2005, a man named Ron Merle Ward is shot to death by rangers at the campground, and it's said that uh, Ron Merle Ward, sounds like a country singer, uh, was drunk and he attacked the rangers with a wooden club. And he had actually previously attacked a, a security guard in Sunnyvale, California, a year beforehand while he was trying... Uh, Basically, they were attempting to arrest him for shoplifting at a Target, and um, he had uh, basically gotten no time for that assault on the security guard. Come up here to go camping. He was hanging out in a trailer. He was drunk. Rangers told him to turn his music down and to stop yelling obscenities, and then he started breaking everything, saying, I'm going to break my shit, 
and smashing stuff with a wooden club. Uh, Rangers came up, you know, basically tried to subdue him. They pepper sprayed him. And he took his club and he tried to kill the Rangers. And they had to open fire and they killed him. Then on September 19th of 2005, two campers were found dead inside their tent at the Mazama campground. Uh, these people were actually both young. Althea Christensen, who was only 25, and Tori Christensen, who was 27, uh, were found dead 1 p.m. Saturday. And their tent had been closed up tightly, and they had one of those propane heaters in use. And I actually have a propane camping heater that I've used um, in my camper shell of my truck. And, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive uh, if you're trying to stay warm. But I always make sure that I open up the sliders in my camper shell when I'm running that propane heater. And it makes it nice and warm, but it also creates a lot of ventilation. And I am very, very, uh, and I've used it in my tent before too, but I always keep a flap open. And I always make sure that I've got a lot of ventilation because I'm aware that you know, propane heaters can cause you to die from carbon monoxide poisoning. And so um, they had actually come to the campground uh, a few days beforehand, and their bodies weren't found for about five days, uh, four or five days. So they it's speculated that they'd been there um, since Wednesday, and the well, it's speculated that they died on Wednesday and their bodies were found on Saturday. So people, hundreds of people, were walking by these dead bodies in a tent. Uh, and it's September. It's still warm up there. It's, it's still late summer. So they were probably starting to smell pretty bad, and that's, that's probably why they were discovered. But, um, yeah, it's a bad deal. If you have a propane heater and you're going camping, please remember to use ventilation and don't use it in a tightly enclosed space or you're going to end up like Althea Christensen and Tori Christensen. Um, that's a shame. Perhaps the most famous case in modern history to come out of Crater Lake is that of Samuel Bulky, and he disappeared into thin air while walking near Cleetwood Cove with his father. So it's October 14th, and Samuel is walking around the lake shore with his father, Kenneth. And it's important to note that Samuel had a form of autism that made him extremely sensitive to bright lights and to loud noises. And this would further complicate the search effort for him that followed over the next seven days. And the story goes that he was, went ahead of his father, ran over a rock ledge, came back up, his father said, it's, you know, it's getting dark, you know, we need to go. And Samuel, maybe thinking it was a game, kept uh, running and kept disappearing and getting further and further away from his father uh, in Cleetwood Cove. And at some point, his father lost sight of him and never saw him again. Now, there was some speculation early on that maybe Samuel wasn't even there. Maybe his father had something to do with his disappearance. And this case is famous because um, David Politis actually covered it extensively in Missing 411. It's one of the more mysterious disappearances at Crater Lake, and certainly one of the more mysterious disappearances in the last uh, last couple decades. Um, this one will continue to get attention. Um, like I said, they looked for him. They actually covered about 4,000 acres in a grid search. And they used helicopters, and they used horses, and they used... Uh, 
hundreds of people in this search effort. And Samuel is never found and no clue as to where he may have gone. Did he end up in the lake? Is he somewhere in that area? Now, one of the things that I find pretty curious about children who disappear in national parks is oftentimes their remains are found years later, very close to the point where they disappeared. Uh, sometimes in areas where searchers have looked a number of times and you know, their remains just miraculously show up. So next time I'm down near Cleetwood Cove, maybe I'll walk around and try to find exactly where Samuel Bulky disappeared and give it a look. Maybe I'll make a video. All right. On September 3rd, 2007, we have yet another fatal car accident. Three park employees were traveling near the canal just outside the park entrance, and they rolled the Jeep into the canal, and one of them drowned. Um, I'm just listing off all the deaths that happened inside the park, in case you're wondering why he's talking about all these car accidents. Then, uh, in 2008, now, this is not a human who died, but this is a death mystery. A 500-year-old white bark pine tree is found dead about 100 feet north of the rim. And this tree is actually known as Pinus albicollis. And if you know me, you know I absolutely love trees. I love mushrooms. I love nature. I love scientific names. So I say them a lot and people's eyes glass over, that kind of thing. And I like to study biology. I mean, it's one of my passions. And so there is a blister rust named Cornitarium ribicola that is actually spread by pine beetles. And pine beetle is actually Dendoctonus brevicomis. Really cool name that is. And so this white bark pine, it grows in really short, twisted knots, and it lives at elevations up near the tree line, and they can reach extreme ages. We're not talking a huge tree here. It's not like the redwoods where it's thousands of feet, uh, thousands of feet, where it's hundreds of feet tall and where it's, uh, you know, many, 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 you know, we're talking 30, 40 feet around in circumference. It's not a huge tree. It's a small, gnarled tree that ekes out a living near the snow line. And uh, it's very, very susceptible to this blister rust, which is um, basically spread by this pine beetle. And this blister rust, coincidentally, is not native to the United States. It's thought that it came over sometime around 1900. It was brought here on European pine trees, white pines, and it basically jumped host, and now it's found in our native white pines, which are endangered. And it, this, this rust basically causes these cankers on the bark of the tree and eventually kills them. And so, is it a death mystery? Well, it took a little bit of uh, investigation to figure out what exactly killed this 500-year-old pine tree, but this one breaks my heart. I absolutely love the really old, rare trees, and I'm always out looking for the coolest, oldest, or youngest trees, and I like to keep a little census in, my, in the back of my head about what I'm seeing. And up at Crater Lake, I've seen a lot of really cool old trees, and next time I'm up there, I'm going to have to look for some of these... Uh, gnarled grizzled old white pines and i'll say it one more time pinus albicollis what a cool name
2009, we have a man who falls 200 feet just behind the Rim Village, but survives with just a little bit of a scrape. So you can imagine falling 200 feet and then getting up and saying, I'm okay. Um, Then in uh, 2010, on September 17th, a car actually plunges 1,100 feet into Crater Lake with a dog inside. And this is actually a couple who had traveled to Crater Lake from Ashland, a really cool little town that's at the very south end of our county here, near the border of California, if you don't know Ashland. And so they they had taken their 1993 VW Passat and parked it up at the Rim Village with their dog inside. And I guess they forgot to set the emergency brake or the dog dislodged the emergency brake. The car actually went over the cliff, falling 1,100 feet, and the dog jumped out of the car as it was bouncing off of boulders traveling down this cliff and got up, and the dog was actually uninjured, and he was rescued by rangers using ropes, and what a happy story, you know? I'm really glad the dog lived. Um, You know, all these people fall into their death and all this other stuff, but cool the dog lived uh so that's something to smile about and then in 2011 a man fell 300 feet um from the rim village and also survived rangers rappelled down and rescued him and i guess he was a little more banged up and uh gosh and i'm gonna go kind of fast here we're getting close to the end in 2014 on april 30th a snowshoer went missing near the rim village and if you'll remember, um, that video, or that video, that audio clip that I played at the beginning of the episode, that is this, a man named uh, Cameron Parnell, who was from Mount Juliet, Tennessee, rented some snowshoes and disappeared. And uh, he has never been found. And his family is seeking a death certificate just recently to have him declared dead, um, so it's pretty obvious that he's dead unless he, you know, is pulling some kind of fast one and disappeared on us all, right? Um, but yeah, that's still going on. He hasn't been declared dead yet. Uh, so remember how they said they hadn't identified him back in that news clip? Well, Cameron Parnell of Tennessee uh, is, you know, is a, another one of our snowshoers who's gone missing. So I don't think I'll be renting any snowshoes and setting off for a little walk while I'm up at Crater Lake. Uh, seems kind of dangerous. Uh, and tw- on July 28th of 2016, a Portland man falls 250 feet uh, from behind the lodge, um, actually near the Pinnacles trailhead, and uh, he survives. His name was Zhongwei Yu, and um, he was actually up trying to take selfies and fell and survived. Then, in uh, oh, we're getting really close to the end here. In 2017, on the 4th of July, a Florida man falls to his death in the same area of the Rim Village. His name was Kevin Octavio, and he was out walking in the early morning hours, and uh, apparently he was trying to take some photos of the sunrise, and he falls to his death. Uh, The most recent incident I have um, that I could find was on August 19th of 2019, a 27-year-old man drowns in the Cleetwood Cove area. And so he, there's an area at Cleetwood Cove that has a pretty good-sized rocks that a lot of people jump off of. If you want to see them, there's a lot of YouTube videos of people 
you know, kind of thinking they're daredevils jumping off these rocks. And it is allowed. And maybe next time I'm at Crater Lake, I'll jump off the same rocks. Looks pretty fun, actually. Um, so a man was jumping up the rocks like everybody else does. And the, um, well, the water there is actually uh, close to 1,600 feet deep. So you're jumping off this rock, and there's probably no chance you're going to hit anything. There's not going to be any submerged uh, logs or rocks or anything. It's 1,600 feet deep. So he jumps in, but never resurfaces. And they actually didn't find his body until a day later. And it was actually found submerged in 90 feet of water. And there's really an autopsy was done. And there was no cause of death other than, you know, drowning. But it was said that he could swim really well. There's no reason for him not resurfacing. There's no reason for him drowning in this area. And people continue to jump in this area uh, off these rocks and enjoy themselves to this day. I'm sure plenty of people did it uh, just days after his death and continue to do it um, this year, last year. Um, anyway, I'm going to try it at some point. I'm going to go up there and maybe jump off these rocks and uh, wish me luck. I hope I don't drown. Wow, so this is actually shaping up to be my longest episode ever. Um, it's an hour and 12 minutes, hour and 13 minutes right now. So if you've made it all the way through this episode, I really, really am grateful that you spent this much time listening to my voice talk about all the deaths at Crater Lake. And I've got a really good episode planned for February. It's probably going to be another two-parter. And uh, expect the first part out in just a few days. Um, I'm working on it already. I'm not going to tell you what it is, though. You've got to you got to wait. Um, so thank you, everybody, for being a loyal listener. And, um, you know, if there's any feedback or requests for cases that you want me to cover or areas you want me to cover in the state of Oregon, I'm going to continue to do Oregon um, basically for the next, uh, well, probably six months. And then my third season, I think I'm going to jump to either far northern California or start covering some cases out of Washington. Uh, there's there's just so much out there to cover. And again, I'm looking for a co-host. If you like what I do here, I think I could be a lot better if I had somebody to banter with. And uh, you're, you want to dip your toe in the podcast world, that'd be cool. I'm thinking about starting up a Patreon um, so that I could... Uh, you know, maybe get a little extra bonus content for people who want to join Patreon. And uh, I don't usually plug other uh, podcasts, but um, I'd like to give a shout out to the defunct podcast, The Mortuary, for kind of, uh, you know, inspiring me. Um, and then uh, if you like this podcast, Necronomapod, that's another one of my favorite podcasts I like to listen to. Of course, Crime Junkies and... Um, Gosh, I could go on and on, but um, if you like this, you probably like those podcasts too. And uh, thanks for listening, and um, keep your head on a swivel. Don't become a death mystery. Situational awareness. Uh, lock your doors. Oh, I almost forgot. I was the victim of a crime last week when I was at work. I was parked in the employee parking lot, and uh, sometime between 11 and 1 a.m., somebody broke my window out, and it was snowing and raining and uh, stole my money and ransacked my truck. And um, basically management at the sawmill told me, oh, we have cameras, but they can't actually see what's going on in the parking lot. 
So what the hell good are cameras? And uh, the police came out. They took a report, that kind of thing. Um, but it looks like I'm out the money, and I'm out the money for the window. And uh, it's making me um, rethink things a little bit here. Uh, anyway, I, uh, gosh, nowhere is safe. I live in a small town. You know, there's 3,000 people in this town. It's a very small town. Um, but nowhere is safe. Even a locked parking lot where... Uh, where you think you're safe with barbed wire around you in a small town, even there isn't safe. Um, but that's enough about that. I'm going to move on. That was a week ago. And um, yeah, no, no, no use in thinking about it. But I am going to be very, very aware about where I park. I'm already aware about where I'm walking, who's around me, what time I'm out. Um, you know, I'm not overly suspicious, but I'm going to try to be a little bit more careful about where I park. And don't leave your valuables or your wallet in your car. Take it from me. Um, okay, until next time, don't become a death mystery. Mm-hmm.